Beth and I'm a psychological wellbeing practitioner from Newcastle. I just wanted to say the biggest thank you to the contributors of the Clinical Psychologist Collective book. I've enjoyed reading this so much and loved having an insight into the range of backgrounds and experiences people have prior to applying for the doctorate and it's been really interesting seeing the potential barriers to the application as well and how I can try and work around this. I really started to doubt myself and whether I was good enough to apply for the clinical psychology doctorate but this has really given me the confidence boost that I needed to give it a shot so the biggest thank you ever. If you're looking to become a psychologist Then let this be your guide With this podcast at your side You'll be on your way to being qualified It's the Aspiring Psychologist Podcast With Dr. Marianne Trent Hi, welcome along to the Aspiring Psychologist podcast. I am Dr. Marianne Trent and I'm a qualified clinical psychologist. So I love introducing you guys to different areas where you potentially could work or gain experience along your route to wherever your ultimate career goal might be. And today's guest is going to talk with us about something you might not have heard of, as it wasn't something I'd heard of before. We're going to be talking about training in psychoanalysis. And so I hope you find it a really useful episode. If you'd like to discuss any of the content in the podcast, do come along to the Aspiring Psychologist Community free group on Facebook. Hope you find this useful and I look forward to catching up with you on the other side. Hi, welcome to the podcast, Eloise Skinner. Hi, Eloise. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're more than welcome. Thank you for coming on. So we've been thinking a little bit, we have a little chat before about um, about many things, really, um, about you having changed careers and about what you're doing currently. So we should introduce the fact that you're here currently because we're kind of looking at alternative, you know, methods for working in kind of mental healthy um, therapy roles. And that's what you're doing now, isn't it? Do you want to tell us a little bit about about what you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, as you said, I had a bit of a career change over the last few years. I started in corporate law, so I trained as a lawyer. Um, I went to law school, so I studied law at uni and then qualified as a solicitor in the UK and or in England and Wales. And, um, and then I practiced law for about five years. And during the pandemic, I had a bit of a moment where I was like this is the time to make a change because you know everything else was so uncertain and it seemed like if there's any time to really uproot your life it might be in the middle of um or everything that was already happening um so then I decided to take a break actually I sort of called it a break to myself so that I would have some ability to maybe come back if I wanted to and yeah in that break I started a business um which is really around helping people find a sense of purpose and meaning um, also working with like schools and young people around those topics and yes I was also doing my training to become um, a psychotherapist at the same time so that was the training sort of helped me re-pivot my career from one to the other it was like a nice bridge between going from one thing and then sort of helping me see that there was a different direction in the future. Brilliant thank you so yeah that that is some pivot isn't it from from law lawyer to psychotherapist um, how does the training for for your psychotherapy work? So uh, my 
training is part-time um which means that it's kind of in terms of time commitment it's one or two um sort of like big chunks of time per quarter let's say so like it will be three or four days um every few months and then those are those were during the pandemic online <laughs> so a lot of it was just on zoom to begin with and then it started becoming um, in-person meetings. So we're back in person now, which is really nice, actually. And you can imagine like a psychotherapy training, as I'm sure yours was as well, like really important to be with the rest of your group and sort of um, get to know them. Um, so, yeah, we were back in person. And, yeah, it's like these sort of long weekends slash like four or five day meetings and exams um, at the end of every module. And the way our training is structured um, in existential analysis is uh, what they call the basic training which is sort of an introduction to the topic and like um sort of the basic framework of the field um and you get assessed on that and then you move into the clinical side which is sort of how to apply it to different clinical situations and that's where i am at the moment right towards the end so i have um as we speak i have two more modules and then i will be done um but i did the basic training i think finished about last year so now i'm in clinical brilliant so you're on on the countdown now Yes, almost there. The end is sort of in sight. Not quite yet, but almost. I see. So I'm going to ask what feels like might be a stupid question, but my only real understanding of the term existential comes from my <laughs> upbringing, where we used to watch something called Dawson's Creek. I don't know if you've ever oh, watched yeah. it. And it was, it was regarded as sort of an existential navel-gazing series. And so that's really my only <laughs> bolt-on to that term um you know and sometimes I still hear songs and I think all oh, that would have made a great song for the soundtrack of Dawson's Creek it's like oh you know woe is me could you tell us a little bit more in a more up-to-date accurate reflection not in involving Dawson's Creek what existential psychotherapy is Eloise yeah I love that <laughs> that's a great reference um Yes, yeah, so it kind of is about all of those feelings and all of those emotions as well. Um, it's a really broad field, actually, and it's still very much evolving. So it's a field of psychotherapy that um, has a lot of different sort of elements within it and a lot of different um, ideas and theories within it. Um, and it really stems from, well, a couple of places. There's obviously existentialism as in like the branch of philosophy, which um is sort of an inspiration for a lot of the work and theories um try to apply that in a more practical setting or like help people through some of those issues um and then one central piece of body of work or a central figure in the field is victor frankl um the author of man's search for meaning where he kind of sets out logotherapy which was his way of applying um sort of more existential interpretations to psychoanalysis to psychotherapy and now it can be practiced in many, many different ways. Um, I'm training in something called existential analysis, which is like a more specific part of existential therapy as a whole. Um, but there are obviously lots of lots of other ways to practice it as well. And really at the heart of it, it's about, um, well, it's about addressing the idea of the whole person and making sure that you're um, sort of encompassing the entirety of the person. So not just um, your mind or your body or you know this kind of spiritual sense or you know the soul as it was originally referred to but the entirety of the person so taking into account um, all of our experiences and our backgrounds and our histories and what we feel and think about things and how we react and sort of working with that as a whole um, and then 
another idea, another central idea within the field is having this sense of um, yes to life, which was actually a title of one of Viktor Frankl's books or a translated title, which is this sense of being able to um, have this sense of uh, personal presence within your own life, to be connected to your life, to be in dialogue with the, the way you live your life and the choices you make and being able to have this fundamental yes to like being here and doing the life that doing the life that you're doing. Um, so those are, those are some ideas, but that's the field. It's very, it's much more, much, much more than that, of course. <laughs> so sort of the yes philosophy would be like ultimate mindfulness, like really choosing to mindfully be where we're at right now. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, an element of presence, I think, is really central to it like that, um, as you just described. I think, um, you know, one of the quotes that's often sort of given in terms of this field and this ne isn't necessarily from anyone in this field I think it's sort of a um, summary of some of Victor Frankl's thoughts and um, interpretations uh, but there's this idea that between like stimulus and response you could have a gap where you then decide what you're going to do or decide your choices or decide your reactions to life that quote's given around quite a lot often attributed to Frankl but it's sort of a summary of what he would have thought about the field um, and yeah, so it's this idea that you have a sense of autonomy or like personal determination to craft your life in the way that you want. You have the ability to choose your responses to the things that happen to you. And so it's very much, yeah, mindfulness, I'd, I'd say, is a good way of describing it. And it does um, sort of associate itself with a lot of the more like yoga and meditation style, choose your life, be present in your life, you know, um, be present in your body ideas as well. Um, but just a different interpretation of that. I see. Thank you. I was listening to um, Radio 2, Jeremy Vine recently, and um, they were talking about whether it's ethical um, and whether it should be banned to bring cakes into shared offices. I don't know if you heard the programme. Um, and the theory was, you know, we've all been there, haven't we? You know, if, if people bring in cake, you weren't necessarily looking for cake. You weren't necessarily going to have cake that day. But when you see it, you know, you are more likely to eat it or, you know, but it's interesting to hear about you saying, actually, you know, you do still have choices. It's not just stimulus and response. Mm -hmm. There's something in between and you can hold on to your values and, and what is true to you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a really central idea of the entire um, sort of philosophy behind this field is that um, you do have in every situation you have a choice or you know, you always have the ability to decide who you are and how you respond to certain things. This is kind of the fundamental freedom of the human being, of the ability to decide um, how you're going to move through the world or how you're going to react to things. And so, yeah, in a situation like that, you you can see, oh, yeah, it might be a bit more challenging, but there's a huge space in which you can decide what you're going to do, how you're going to respond. And as you said, a lot of it is about values and where you stand and what your opinion is about certain things and how you feel about your position to life. Um, so knowing those fundamental values, I think, is a really important part of sort of laying the foundations to make that choice later on. Great. And um, just thinking about our audience being aspiring psychologists, it can be really quite tricky to get into qualified professional psychology routes. And it can be really, oh, really frustrating, really um, just full of dismay along the way sometimes. Can you give our audience some advice from an existential perspective about how to cope with that uncertainty and how to cope with yeah whatever's going on for them in their life right now 
Yeah, wow. Um, I think maybe one of the tools or one of the um, steps that you can take within this field is this idea of um, sort of safety and security in your own life or trying to cultivate a deeper sense of that. Um, and there's a term that's used called fundamental trust, which is also almost like your um, sense of trust or your sense of being present and safe and secure in the world. Um, and I think that's one of the things that's always helped me through periods of anxiety is this knowledge that, you know, things change around you, things come and go, good and bad things happen, like stressful things happen. And, you know, the world sort of changes a lot. But ultimately, if you can cultivate this sense of, I guess, fundamental trust in your own self and in your presence in the world, like your the sense that you're able to be here, that you belong, that you're able to take up space and that you're you know, fundamentally quite grounded in the world. I think that can be a really helpful um, sort of perception to have of yourself as you kind of move through your life. And there are lots of exercises that they have to cultivate this sense of trust. Um, things like uh, sort of body focused exercises can be quite helpful. So there's an exercise called the armchair exercise um, where the student or the practitioner would sit in a chair with your feet on the floor and then you would sort of go through these steps of um, just bringing your awareness to the space, bringing your awareness to your body, um, bringing your awareness to the sense of being like grounded and present. And then you can even use phrases like, um, you know, I am secure, I'm grounded, sort of um, almost like a mantra type phrase that you can just sort of like run through, um, focus on your breath, um, you know, in the sense of being like fully present and within your body and within your life. Um, so there are a few variations on that exercise, but I guess the the intention of it is to really feel secure and to cultivate like a greater sense of security in, in your life. I think things like that, as well as like other body focused practices can be a real like bridge into that sense of being really secure and trusting in the world. Yeah. And so there's definitely some sort of affirmation work in there as well, um, which is something I've been finding quite useful lately, actually. And I love, I love that idea of giving yourself permission to take up space, take up room. Um, I think often as women specifically, I speak as a woman, um, that's something that we're not necessarily, you know, and even when we're growing up, we're told, like, you know, don't want to hear what you've got to say as a child you know often it's the adults that get to speak first and we just we get used to to being small and not having opinions and that can be tricky it can be tricky in boardrooms it can be tricky in conference rooms it can be tricky in lecture theatres you know who am I to speak what have I got anything worth saying so I like that idea of empowerment yes you have mm, absolutely and um I guess coming back to that sense of um being within your own life and having this yes to life or this position to life where you're committed to, you know, doing the things that you want to do and making your choices and finding your freedom um, to craft and design your own life and respond to the things that happen to you. These are all ideas that kind of feed through into like all of those situations that you were talking about. It sort of starts with this really personal work where you might just be sitting in a chair being like focusing on your breath and your body. And, you know, it doesn't seem like a huge step to take. But over time, that becomes sort of your position, your attitude and the way you interpret the world. And then you sort of feed that out into every single situation so that when you are in like a lecture hall or when you are, you know, advocating for yourself in certain situations, those positions, those fundamental attitudes sort of feed back into your life. Um, and it can be quite imperceptible. I think sometimes psychotherapy can be a bit um, frustrating if you are, um, you know, someone who's undertaking psychotherapy because it's not always an immediate transformation and you can't see like as if you were going to the gym and like in two weeks you can do 
an extra press up or whatever um but with psychotherapy or these more like sort of personal focused practices it's hard to see um immediate sort of overnight transformations um and that can be a little frustrating but yeah i would say as someone who's been practicing this stuff for a while um as a student of existential psychotherapy before um, i trained in it um it definitely does you sort of see it feed through into the rest of your life in a really satisfying and fulfilling way Great. I was just thinking about um, some of the clients that we might work with and some of the issues that we see and um, some of the diagnoses that we might see. Um, And with something like PTSD, so post-traumatic stress disorder, that has happened as a result of something really awful happening to somebody, that's not their choice. But how do we work with them or kind of get them on board or formulate with them to help them think about their position and their choices Mm. yeah and I think um it's a really interesting example because there are a lot of times in life where our freedom if we think oh you have freedom of choice you can wake up tomorrow and go for a run or you can travel the world or whatever everyone's freedom is restricted and most people's freedom is restricted in some very very practical ways so you don't have the physical ability or you don't have the money or you know whatever you don't have the circumstances that would allow for all of the choices that could be possible um so i guess when you're talking about a narrowed form of a narrowed field of freedom where you do have choices still, but they're drastically restricted in different ways, or maybe you can't perceive all the choices, or it seems like it feels like there isn't much choice um, available. I think Viktor Frankl's work would really encourage um, sort of just focusing in on the places that you do have freedom still. So obviously, a lot of his experience was formulated in the context of the concentration camps in Nazi Germany. And, um, you know, people didn't really have any, you know, freedom or autonomy in those situations um but what he was observing was people were able to carve out little pieces of choice or you know the freedom to choose fundamentally your own responses to the things that happen to you is sort of the freedom of a human being the freedom to decide not the practical things that happen to you or the things that come your way but the ability to respond to them in a certain way, like your attitude towards a situation, how you're going to deal with it. That freedom still exists in any situation. And I guess that is something to hold on to if you're someone who feels like they've been stripped away of a lot of practical choices. And I mean, existential therapy is um, just one tool to be used alongside other things, of course. So when you're talking about more complex um, clinical situations, definitely other therapies are helpful as well. Um, but that perception of, okay, when we strip it right down, what do you have if you don't have any other choices in the situation? You still have the ability to decide how you're going to respond to the things that happen. Yeah. Okay. So we can respond right now, even if we couldn't respond how we chose or how we would want to, to have done at the time. Right. Right. And yeah. uh, and there's a sense of um, sort of taking ownership of your choices in the moment. Um, there's a lot of sort of um, biography type work where you're looking back at your past and seeing the things that have sort of formed you into who you are today. And as you said, even if you felt like there wasn't any choice in the past, um, you did make choices that have sort of brought you to where you are. So you can take ownership of that as a part of your freedom as well. And then, as you said, making choices at the moment. Great. Thank you. So who would be the ideal client for you and people in your in your cohort? And yeah, what what problems and symptoms and kind of 
yeah difficulties might they be experiencing in their life how would they know that actually you know the thing they needed was existential psychotherapy yeah it's a good question especially because it's not that well known so I think it takes a while for people to sort of come to the field or to find it to stumble across it I think um obviously people maybe this was my situation who were just really searching for some kind of depth and feeling like a a little bit lost in their own lives. There's this phrase that Viktor Frankl uses called the existential vacuum, which is when people sort of get trapped in this place where they can't see a sense of meaning and purpose, uh, which is really my experience of like sort of being, you know, everything is okay, but it doesn't have any depth to it. So you're sort of just floating around thinking like, what's the point in anything? And um, that was where I was when I sort of sought out these, this type of work. And this has been really, really helpful for me. So people may be in that situation where they can't really see a greater sense of meaning or purpose. Um, you can also use it in moments of more like, like crisis type situations, you know, a drastic loss of meaning or a transitional event, say like grief or um, career change might be one as well, or um, physical changes to the body like illness or, you know, other restrictions on your freedom things like that where you're sort of trying to take back the um the presence in your life um, and reclaim it for yourself um but really i think logotherapy especially um the idea is that you don't have to be someone with a situation you don't have to come with like oh i've been divorced or you know i'm going through this thing or you don't, you don't have to come with something that you're working through you can just come <laughs> and explore your life because i guess the sense is like every single person on the planet has a sense has a sense of being present in their lives and making choices and so you can always explore this work even if your life is like going really great <laughs> um but yeah it can be used in yeah situations of more um trauma as well in clinical settings as well Great. Thank you. Um, a little bit of context is always useful. And in terms of if people wanted to explore training um, and, you know, how widespread is it and how do people access it? Is it self-funded? Could you tell us a little bit about the practical elements to it, please? Absolutely. So um, for logotherapy, logotherapy, there are a few trainings around. Um, there's the Victor Frankl Centre in Ireland, um, I think is one of the main ones. And they do courses that are like self-study um, and also like a bigger diploma course as well. Um, that I think is all part-time. So I don't think any of it is like full-time on campus. Um, and then from a more like academic background, I think there are a few universities that do sort of existential analysis, like degree type courses where you would actually go and study at a university level. Obviously, then I think you would need to convert it into a practicing um qualifying course if you wanted to practice but that could be like a nice way to learn about the topics um and then existential analysis is really centered in vienna um so i'm training with um yeah a center for existential analysis which is centered in vienna but has now spread out to other places canada has, has a lot of existential analysis work it's funny to see where it spreads to but uh canada the uk um vienna and also um sort of places like Russia as well there's quite a lot of work out there um in this topic but um yeah my course is uh self-funded so I'm not, actually not sure what the situation would be if you took it as a second I don't know too much about how the UK I imagine there's not much funding around to be honest from what I know about the UK education system but um when I did my first degree that was obviously then I used student finance and then this I'm assuming there's some kind of support available but I thought maybe it would be a bit too tricky and because I'm working as well part-time I thought okay let's just try and fund it myself 
Um, and it has been quite difficult, actually. Um, and I was saying to someone the other day, like, I cannot believe how expensive psychotherapy trainings are. Like, it seems to cut a lot of people out of the profession because, you know, you have to pay for like a practicing course and then obviously all of your hours as well as a trainee therapist. Um, and yeah, you're practicing uh, all of the things that come along with practicing for the first time. So yeah, it's a lot. I don't know whether you're, I'm sure your listeners will have a much better sense of like how it can be done if you need funding. But um, yeah, for me, it's just been working alongside and struggling. <laughs> Thank you. The struggle is real. And there's um, there's branches of professional qualified psychologists that also have to self-fund as well. And it's just like, it's just, yeah, it seems massively unethical. Um, could you tell us what sort of settings existential psychotherapists might find themselves working in or where you might where you might see or bump into them? Yeah, I think um, a lot of sort of more clinical psychotherapists who have had a basic training in other forms of therapy might have a little bit of sort of um, an idea of these therapies. So you might be introduced to it there through just a therapist that you're seeing or that you're working with. So, yes, you can... Um, see it alongside uh, or you can see it in clinical practice in hospitals in clinics uh, just one-to-one -one with a therapist um, it is used in places like schools sometimes so there's a little bit of um, existential analysis that works with younger people um, especially in that transition from sort of more like school level to adulthood it can be a really difficult and very existential time to be reflecting on who you are where you are in the world <laughs> um, Dawson's Creek kind of vibes um, so you're thinking about what you want to do and I think it could be really helpful there. I actually wish I would have had something during that period to support me in this kind of work. But um, yes. And then other places where, like you were saying earlier, sort of where your freedom is restricted a bit. I think that's where you see might see these therapies come in a bit more. So things like uh, prisons or, you know, sort of medical situations where you're dealing with a loss of physical freedom, something like that. Um, grief counsellors um, as well. Or, yeah, things like um, losses that you're going through. Um, and it can also be used in situations of like PTSD or other clinical conditions, say people are returning from like a traumatic situation or even people returning from, well, for Victor Brankel's situation, like the concentration camp, so the idea of wartime or a really traumatic situation um, that you're so, sort of kind of rebuilding your life and finding your freedom after that. Brilliant. Thank you. It's been a really interesting whistle-stop tour through stuff that I certainly hadn't considered. And it's always nice to to shed some light on other areas of kind of mental health practice and things that are going on um, in the wider world. So thank you so much for that. And I know that you've got a number of books under your belt and a new one coming out as well, haven't you? Could you tell us a little bit about those? Thank you. Yes. Um so yeah, my first couple of books were sort of more like business focused books um, in law and then um, when I started a business. And then this third one that is coming out um, is called But Are You Alive? Question mark. And it's all about, it's kind of about these ideas actually. So <laughs> it's a good um, little summary of some of the existential analysis ideas, logotherapy, a lot of Viktor Frankl's work in there, some practical exercises, um, but also some more sort of body focused stuff. Um, so some yoga and meditation, mindfulness, as you were saying earlier, um, and trying to bring that together with some more spiritual things as well. So as part of my uh, sort of journey to meaning and purpose, um, I did spend a year training with a monastic community. So it's a lot of those practices and trying to sort of bring together the um, 
existential therapy side and also the monastic side and sort of practices to help you live deeper in everyday life that's the idea amazing fly on the wall in the monastic community would be interesting i'm sure yeah <laughs> yeah hopefully brilliant where can people learn more about you or get hold of your books if they want to yeah uh, most things are on my website so if you put my name into google it's just eloiseskinner.com and um, you should find my website um, social media as well um on instagram i'm at eloise alexia um and yeah that's kind of mostly where i'm at Great. We'll obviously um, have your details in the show notes as well. Um, thank you so much for your time and helping us learn a little bit more about this um, really interesting area, Eloise. Oh, thank you so much for having me and um, I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. So there we go. My uh, my existential knowledge of Dawson's Creek. Who knew that would come in useful one day. Thank you so much to our guest, Eloise. It was a pleasure to speak with her and uh, very much looking forward to reading her new book, which sounds fascinating when that's available. And what I will do is when the book is released, I will redistribute this podcast episode as well so that we can drum up some more support for her and her work. She sounds like a very busy person who's very good at achieving things. So hope you found that useful. Um, if you want any additional support or guidance to help you in your career as an aspiring psychologist, do consider coming along and joining us in the Aspiring Psychologist membership. If you've got any ideas for future podcast episodes, do just get in contact with me. Come and connect and follow with me on socials where I am Dr. Marianne Trent everywhere. If you're watching on YouTube, please do take a moment to like the video and comment. And of course, subscribe to the channel. I will look forward to catching up with you very soon. Our next episode of the podcast is available from 6am on Mondays. Thank you for being part of my world and I will see you very soon. Take care. If you're looking to become a psychologist, then let this be your guide. With this podcast at your side, you'll be on your way to being qualified. It's the Aspiring Psychologist Podcast with Dr. Marianne Trent. My name is Diakolola Amujo. I am a recent psychology graduate from Ireland. I am also an aspiring clinical psychologist. Dr. Marion's book, The Clinical Psychologist Collective, has been so helpful to me on this journey to becoming a clinical psychologist. As I plan to continue postgraduate studies in the UK, I found it extremely useful that this book provided in-depth information on the UK DCLINSI application process. 
I enjoyed reading about the experiences of both qualified and trainee clinical psychologists. The various narratives were my favorite part of the book, as everyone's story was different and it provided amazing insights into the clinical psychology journey. I would definitely recommend this book to anyone interested in psychology and aspires to become a clinical psychologist.